from WNYC in New York. This is America, Are We Ready? A national call-in every Thursday night for the first 100 days of Joe Biden's presidency. Today is day 16, and this afternoon, the president told the world America is back when it comes to protecting the climate. I'll be hosting Climate Leaders, a Climate Leaders Summit to address the climate crisis on Earth Day of this year. This hour, we will assess the Biden record on climate protection and climate justice so far, talk about the economic implications, and open the phones on the questions, how is the warming planet affecting your life or your area, and how would Biden's climate policies affect you or the place where you live? America, are we ready for a big change on climate change? First, the latest news. From WNYC in New York, this is America, Are We Ready? A national call-in every Thursday night for the first 100 days of Joe Biden's presidency. Good evening, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC. Today is day 16, and I'll frame tonight's episode around a recent headline on Politico. Biden pitching a much vaster climate plan than Obama ever attempted So, America, are we ready for a much vaster climate plan than Obama ever attempted? We'll open up the phones in just a minute. But first, I want you to listen to this. This is the president on Wednesday of last week ticking through some of the ways that climate change is already affecting different areas of the United States. Last year, wildfires burned more than 5,000 acres in the West, as no one knows better than the vice president, former senator from California, an area roughly the size of the entire state of New Jersey. More intense and powerful hurricanes and tropical storms pummel states across the Gulf Coast and along the East Coast. I can testify to that from Delaware. Historic floods, severe droughts have ravaged the Midwest. More Americans see and feel the devastation in big cities, small towns, coastlines, and in farmlands, in red states and in blue states. President Biden last week referencing different regions of the country. So now on that note, we'll invite you to localize that even more. Here's the question. How is the warming planet affecting your life or your area? Help us report the story of climate change in the United States by telling us about your life and your area in this respect. The call-in number is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. 844-745-TALK. How is the warming planet affecting your life or your area? Help us report the story of climate change in the United States by telling us about your place. Later, we'll ask how you think Biden's climate policies would affect you or your area, including whether they'd be good or bad for your job. And we'll ask what would climate justice look like where you live. But question one is simply, how is the warming planet already affecting your life or your area today. Help us report the story of climate change in the United States by telling us about your area. It's um, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Can you see it out your window? It can be that simple or more intensely. Have you been affected by one of those climate catastrophes? the president was talking about in that clip. However climate change is affecting you or your area, 
from the simple like what birds come to your neighborhood these days or how it's affecting your garden uh, to the big and catastrophic and profound. Help us report the story of climate change in the United States. How's it affecting you? How's it affecting your area? 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, okay? With us now, as your calls are coming in, Peggy Shepard, co-founder and executive director of the group We Act for Environmental Justice, and Mark Hertzgard, environment correspondent for The Nation, and co-founder and executive director of a project called Covering Climate Now for the Columbia Journalism Review. Peggy and Mark, thanks for joining us, and welcome to America. Are we ready? Thank you. Good to be here. It's very good to be here with you, Brian, and very good to be with Peggy Shepard again. And Mark, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to start with you, Mark, in, in maybe an unexpected place for our listeners. But you wrote an article called "Amanda Gorman's Poem Rhymes with Biden's Climate Agenda," <laughs> and that refers to, of course, to the poem read at the inauguration by 22-year-old poet Amanda Gordon Gorman Gorman. Forgive me. And I'm going to play the last 17 seconds of her poem from which your article quotes. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. So any excuse to replay part of Amanda Gorman's poem, The Hill We Climb, is a good excuse. So there you go. And Mark, why did you frame an article about climate around it? Brian, I have to tell you, I'm so glad that you played that. I literally have goosebumps running up and down my legs again to listen to that. It was so inspiring. Every time. I think all of America was inspired by that poem and the, the intellectual brilliance, but also the emotional passion of it. And uh, it seems to me that that's what we need at this moment in the climate emergency is intellectual integrity and courage, but also passion to uh, do what's necessary to turn this situation around. And I'll just uh, mention, too, that uh, at the end of my piece, I quoted another three lines of hers that I think also speak to those of us here, all of us really, but especially we, we journalists that we work with here at Covering Climate Now. She wrote, we will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burden. Ms. Gorman was warning us about the dangers of inaction and how our blunders could become the burden of the young people, including my 15-year-old daughter. So that's why we chose to, uh, to use her poem in the, uh, the piece that you're referencing. And Peggy, we'll get into specifics as we go, but how much do you agree with the Politico headline that said, Biden pitching a much vaster climate plan than Obama ever attempted? And you can add to that, is he attempting more climate justice than any previous president? I believe he is. And he has had an impressive uh, beginning by reaching out to advocates all over this country, uh, having an inordinate number of meetings with uh, transition team members, with nominees uh, throughout the campaign, having a variety of committees and subcommittees of experts and advocates making recommendations to him. So he's really listened um, 
for many, many months now, and he's begun to develop some bold actions and plans and executive orders that reflect what he's been hearing. So let's hear from some of our callers on how climate change is affecting you or the area where you live. And callers, we want to get to a lot of you tonight from different states, and we have a part two question for later in the hour, so I'm going to ask you to keep your answers brief. But let's start with James in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Hi, James. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi. How are you doing today? Good. How about you? How's climate change affecting your area? So I live in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, um, an area where I'm a conservationist and a fly fisherman. And the biggest effect that I've seen from climate change is this uh, massively unpredictable rainfall. Uh, I've seen, you know, two populations very affected by climate change farmers and uh, our state fish, the native brook trout. These floods have been blowing out their fields, taking, you know, very valuable topsoil and causing erosion of the banks, you know, caught from these large rainfall events, you know, that cause all the land uh, around the stream to kind of crumble in like sandcastles into the ocean. Uh, The other thing is with this whole drought we had this past fall around here, you know, again, along the theme of unpredictable rainfall, um, our state fish native brook trout require very cold water and things got real low and warm and a lot of them unfortunately didn't make it. Um, we've had flooding on roadways, uh, you know, causing, uh, you know, people not to be able to pass with their automobiles and damage to culverts, uh, you know, increasing municipal costs to repair them. So I've seen a pretty broad ar- array of effects. Who gets hurt? Uh, I would say... Um, Definitely any species that relies on clean, cold water, um, you know, because as things warm, um, you know, species like native brook trout that, you know, we're trying to conserve, it's really hard to do that when the climate's warming and uh, the water's unpredictable. Uh, Farmers get hurt, you know, obviously, you know, they're losing topsoil, the nutrient-rich topsoil from all these flooding events. And, uh, you know, they're having to, uh, you know, replant things and deal with damages. Um, and there's been actually uh, several towns around here. One had to have uh, residents airlifted out uh, in Tremont, Pennsylvania, not that long ago uh, due to a large flood. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's lots of evidence James. of, you know, people and, uh, you know, animals being hurt. James, thank you so much for starting us off. Let's go next to Ann in St. Paul. Hi, Ann. You're on America. Are we ready? Oh, Hi. Um, I just wanted to say that um, I grew up here in Minnesota, and when I was a kid, I just remember, and even 10, 20 years ago, remember in January always having blue skies and people always chastising us for having such cold weather here. And um, now now we have gray skies and not cold weather. You know, people are going out without jackets, and uh, it's... It's yeah, different than it was before. In February in Minnesota? Uh, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And thank you very much. That's going to make a lot of eyebrows go up. Paul in the northern suburbs of Detroit. Paul, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi there. Um, yes. Good evening. So my take on this is that uh, just based on us being such a huge footprint for the auto industry, one thing that I can see that seems to be a change of ideology, I would guess, is the auto industry being more proactive towards um, doing uh, electric vehicles, 
and improved um, emission standards and what have you. Um, but that being said, in the same communities here, you have a disconnect as it relates to um, uh, environmental impact on the communities where one neighborhood issues fines or citations for lack of proper um, recycling. And the next community over, even though they put out a bin for recycling, a lot of that recycling ends up going straight to the mm -hmm. landfill and never touched recycling. In interesting. Paul, two really interesting points. And Peggy Shepard, we have a minute before our first break. You want to react to that or anything from our first set of calls? Yeah, you know, we know that the climate crisis has led to a rise in extreme weather, whether it's hurricanes or wildfires, extreme heat uh, in urban environments, and it's really taking a toll on our economy. And we know that it's, the crisis is going to increase the frequency, the severity, and the duration of these events. And we know that it's an increase in the financial burden as well. So we're really going to have to uh, begin to uh, meet our goals for reducing greenhouse gases that will reduce some of these impacts. And we're going to have to uh, transform our economy in a way that we can begin to finance the kinds of resiliency and mitigation measures we need. And Paul's call from Detroit reminds me of the headline GM this week said, no more gasoline-powered cars from them by 2035. That's a big deal. We'll continue in a minute. It's America, Are We Ready? Our Thursday night national call-in for the first 100 days of the Biden presidency. I'm Brian Lehrer. It's day 16, and we're talking about Biden's climate agenda. And let's go to some more of your calls on the question, how is the warming planet affecting your life or your area today at 844-745-TALK? And as we continue with our guests, Peggy Shepard, co-founder and executive director of We Act for Environmental Justice, and Mark Hertzgard, environment correspondent for The Nation and co-founder and executive director of a journalism project called Covering Climate Now. Tim in Spokane, you're on America Are We Ready? Hi, Tim. Yes, hello. Good afternoon. Well, one of the things, or I guess how I would characterize what's happening out here, it's more like weather events. So we had the big, um, of course, uh, wildfires this summer. Those, of course, were fed and exacerbated by winds. We've had those winds again in the winter, but this time those warm winds have really taken off the snowpack. Now, the mountains still have snow, but in the lower elevations where here in early February, we would typically have some degree of snow on the ground. I agree with a caller from Minnesota. I'm outside and it's really not all that bad. So more wind, but more events. And they're kind of dramatic. Uh, that's kind of how I characterize things. And unfortunately, that means our weather is a little more like Seattle than Spokane. So there we go. Tim, thank you very much. Let's go next to Ken in Covington, Georgia. Ken, you're on America. Are we ready? It's about as far from Spokane as you can get in the continental United States, almost. Hi there. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
Good. Yeah, um, so uh, the year before last, uh, in 2019, uh, last year being 2020, in 2019, I was, uh, uh, I'd, I'd had, you know, heat illness uh, in 2006, April 2006. I got very deathly ill, didn't have, my air conditioner wasn't working, and I ended up going, getting so ill that I went in an ambulance. I thought I could have died several times. Um, and then, uh, you know, I've had trouble keeping uh, my air conditioner, my whole house air conditioner going because it's got a pinprick leak and it leaks out its Freon. And so uh, 2019, um, you know, I knew the summer was coming. I knew it was dangerous. Um, I had gotten a job at McDonald's and I also get Social Security. And it was kind of like trying to beat a train. And so on May 31st, 2019, I got very ill. I didn't have any air conditioning in my house. I got very ill. And I got uh, one air conditioner in my bedroom. And in, in about, uh, you know, June the, the 19th, about 19 days later, I got extremely ill and weak. And while and, and, and Kevin, Ken, um, I, I apologize for, for rushing you when you're telling a story about your illnesses, but... Do you think things are different in Georgia? Is some of this happening to you because the weather has changed? Because yeah, the climate it was definitely has? different because it was definitely different because in 2019 we had worldwide record-breaking heat that broke all records going back to about the 1860s all over the whole world. Many many people died in 2019, and it practically broke all records of heat. And you are right about that. So, Mark Hertzgard, let me go to you on that point, maybe it's worth reminding people of um, just what the heat trends have been globally the last, let's say, during the 21st century, including last year, 2020. Sure. I have to say, listening to all these callers reporting from across the country is very illuminating, but also heartbreaking. Because as someone who's reported on climate change for 30 years now, I can tell you that what these people are saying is exactly what we're hearing from all kinds of people. In Minnesota, where my family's from, they too are losing one of their iconic species, um, the walleye fish, or the comment about the farms. Uh, That's also happening in Kentucky, in the state of the former Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. The farmers there are suffering terribly. Why? Because of downpours, extra strong downpours. We don't usually think about that when we think about climate change. We think about, quite understandably, the heat waves, as this gentleman just mentioned. But uh, one of the things that climate change is going to do is much stronger downpours, which, again, speaking as a farm boy myself, that wrecks, wrecks havoc on farmers. But to your specific question, Brian, the heat has been inexorably rising over the last 20 years on this planet, and we now have all of the hottest years in the history of human civilization uh, have been occurring in these last 20 years. And unfortunately, we are geared for that to continue for some time into the future until we really uh, get these global greenhouse gas emissions under control. I'm going to take one more call on question one, how is the change in climate affecting you or your area? And then we're going to clear the board and go on to question two. But I want to hear from Doug in Philly first, because of what he does for a living, it looks like that's so relevant. Doug, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi. Hello. Good evening, and thanks for taking the call. Yeah, I, uh, I'm literally having a driveway moment here. I was on the way home, and I was hearing your program, and um, yes, I've been working in the uh, wastewater uh, treatment for the past 33 years, 
and specifically the last 17 years working in uh, wastewater treatment facilities. And for those of you who might not know, wastewater is sewage. <laughs> so anyway, what we observe is more and more frequently, and uh, we're, we're seeing our records broken because we obviously we track how much flow we bring in every day, every hour, et cetera. And we're finding out that we're having a peak flow, which is like the instantaneous maximum flow coming into our plants. We keep breaking records more often than we used to. We're also finding that the, uh, the flow coming in for a given day, we're breaking those records again, again, more and more frequently than we used to. And we'll have situations where we have three facilities. One facility will get pounded with rain, and another one might not hardly see anything. And we've had situations where we refer to the rains now as being more flashy. Uh, so if you can think of that analogy to like a flash flood where it just happens all of a sudden, the rain that's coming into our facilities happens all of a sudden. The negative side of this is that the process does not work as well when it's overwhelmed. If you can picture, you know, trying to shove too much into a container and have it do what you want it to do uh, at a given time, uh, your the systems get overwhelmed and the treatment uh, capacity is compromised. More heat begets more moisture, begets more Absolutely. flash Absolutely. floods and heavier rainstorms. Doug, thank you for that lesson in wastewater, a euphemism for sewage, as he taught us. This is America Are We Ready, our Thursday night national call-in for President Biden's first 100 days. Today, it's on climate policy. We're going to clear the phone lines now from the first half question. We got quite a sampling from around the country of ways that climate change is affecting people all over the place. And here comes the second half question. How do you think Biden's climate policies would affect you, or the place where you live, 844-745-TALK. How do you think Biden's climate policies would affect you or the place where you live, 844-745-8255? And there are at least two aspects to this that I'm thinking of that you might call in on or add your own. One is, what would climate justice look like in your city or town? Tell Peggy Shepard that so it can help inform her environmental justice work. And also, listeners, how do you think Biden's climate policies might affect your job or your economic prospects? 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. We'd love to hear from you on what climate justice would look like in your area and how you think Biden's policies, as he tries to get really tough on carbon emissions, would affect your economic life, 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. Um, and, and to kind of help set this up, Peggy, I think one of the most profound things in politics the last few years is the merging of the environmental movement and the racial justice movement. They used to be seen more often, I think, as separate or even sometimes at odds because professional environmentalists have tended to be white and might not have centered working class jobs in their activism so much, which could have affected black and brown working people. Now we have the Green New Deal and things like it, which really see these movements as one. And here's another clip of the president speaking last week, promising to make it so. Environmental justice will be at the center of all we do addressing the disproportionate health and environmental and economic impacts on communities of color, so-called fence line communities, especially those communities, brown, black, 
Native American, poor whites. It's hard, the hard-hit areas, like Cancer Alley in Louisiana, Cancer Alley in Louisiana or the Route 9 Carter in the state of Delaware. That's why we're going to work to make sure that they receive 40% of the benefits of key federal investments in clean energy, clean water, and wastewater infrastructure. Lifting up these communities makes us all stronger as a nation and increases the health of everybody. So, Peggy, can you react to the president there from an environmental justice perspective? Absolutely. You know, um, we're really looking to the Biden administration to lead the way in achieving a real just transition from an economy that's been based on fossil fuels to one based on renewable energy. And we really mean investing in the communities also that are most impacted by by the climate crisis, training underemployed folks for green jobs in the renewable energy field and hiring them. So again, um, the commitment to investing 40% of clean energy funding in environmental justice frontline communities will be critical because we really need a stronger, more resilient nation as well as our communities. And we need the infrastructure investments to really rebuild the nation, to, shore, to really um, ensure that our buildings, water, transportation, and the energy infrastructure can withstand the impacts of climate change. And so the environmental justice movement has been working um, on a racial frame for over 30 years because we understand that it has been environmental racism that has really intentionally targeted environmental justice communities for uh, pollution. And so those communities have been environmentally degraded and the health impacts uh, have been very crucial. It has really led to increasing uh, health disparities in those communities. And in fact, one of the latest Harvard studies has indicated that due to air pollution, uh, that many people of color who living in air polluted communities have had higher risk of mortality and morbidity from COVID-19. Mm. So again, um, this will have a significant impact on frontline communities if Biden can make good on his environmental justice commitments. Now, Mark, the economic side is where Republican pushback comes the most. For example, one of Biden's new policies is a moratorium on new oil and gas drilling leases on federal lands. And that mostly affects certain Western states. And here is Republican Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming at the confirmation hearing last week for Biden's chosen energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm. The last Democratic administration went on a regulatory rampage to slow or stop energy production. Uh, and I'm not going to sit idly by or my colleagues if the Biden administration enforces policies that threaten Wyoming's economy and the lifebloods of so many people in my home state. So, Mark, does the president and do environmental journalists like yourself have to acknowledge that jobs in places like Wyoming will be lost and then compare the benefits of his policies to that? No, they don't. And this is another, you mentioned that one of the big changes has been the uh, coming together of the racial justice and the environmental movements. The other big change that I've seen since covering this beat is that finally, 
uh, both the environmental movement but also now the new administration understands that you cannot make progress on climate change unless you also have a jobs program as part of it. And happily now, compared to 10 or 15 years ago, uh, the economic argument now is very straightforward. Renewable energy is much cheaper than conventional energy. Of course, a senator from Wyoming is going to speak differently about that. But the fact of the matter is, and, and this is one of the things that's very impressive about the Biden um, approach here, is that it will create more jobs. This is the opportunity as we retool the American economy, especially to, to recover from the COVID pandemic's cratering of this economy, uh, that we invest not in 20th century technologies, but in the 21st century technologies of clean cars and clean energy. And that's why arguably as important as what Joe Biden has said about uh, moving the country in a new direction. I think the even bigger environmental story of last week that didn't quite get the attention it deserves is, and you mentioned it, General Motors saying that we are not going to sell gasoline-powered engines past 2035. Right. That is a potential dagger to the heart of the oil industry as we know it today. But when the how? biggest car manufacturer says we're not going to do that anymore, that's a big deal, and it's going to create millions of jobs. But let me push you a little on this economically, because how would it work? Like, what are all these green energy jobs going to be? And can you convert mining areas, like must be in John Barrasso State, to green energy production areas with jobs that pay as much? And we just heard Biden promise 40% of the benefits to largely bl uh, black and brown areas. That would not be... Senator Barrasso's uh, mining country so much, I don't think. <laughs> no, so no, it would not. How do how do how you know how do his constituents and the forty percent that would go to black and brown communities and cancer alleys and things like that? Um, how, how, where do all those jobs come from? Yeah, excellent question. And this is another place where Biden has listened and gotten very good advice. In fact, from the former mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, wrote a piece in Bloomberg uh, Business Week uh, magazine, I think back in October, but it was right before the election, pointing out that those very workers at coal mines and oil and gas wells across the, the country. We need to hire those very people with their very skill set to basically close down and safely uh, restore those uh, mines and wells and cap them and create uh, you know, an environmentally safe place for them. And the perfect workers to do that are the workers who are there right now so that they don't have to leave their communities. They can continue to do the work that they have been doing for a long time. And let's be clear, America owes those workers and the companies who employed them a great um, thank you for what they've done for this country over the last hundred years. They've given us a lot of comfort and wealth and so forth. Now we cannot leave them behind, and it is very encouraging, if only from the, not only from the moral side, but also from the politics and the economic right. side, that Biden gets this and says we're not going to leave those workers behind. In fact, we're going to employ them to basically clean up those places uh, as we go forward. And, and Peggy, as I manage the clock here before our next break, can you give us about 45 seconds of anything you want to add to that? And then we're going to start with the callers. And uh, Caleb in Mashpee, Massachusetts, you're going to be up next right after the break on how they think these policies would affect them. Yeah, no community should be left behind. And I think what Biden is trying to do is to say no community will 
be left behind. No frontline community, no farming community, no ranching community. Um, so all of us who are who are experiencing the extreme weather events, extreme, you know, experiencing job loss because of the switch from fossil fuel economy, no community should be left behind. And if Congress will cooperate, that will happen. It's America. Are we ready? More in a minute. It's America, Are We Ready? Our Thursday night national call-in for the first 100 days of the Biden presidency. I'm Brian Lehrer. It's day 16, and we're talking about Biden's climate agenda. And let's go to some of your calls on the question, how do you think Biden's climate policies would affect you or the place where you live, including what would be needed to bring climate justice to your area? And how do you think Biden's climate policies would affect your job or your job prospects? 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. And as we continue with our guests for the hour, Peggy Shepard, co-founder and executive director of the group We Act for Environmental Justice, and Mark Hertzgard, environment correspondent for The Nation and co-founder and executive director of a project called Covering Climate Now, for the Columbia Journalism Review. And Caleb in Mashpee, Massachusetts, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Caleb. Hi, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm calling from Mashpee. We're here on Cape Cod, and you know, one of the things that's a big worry here is rising sea levels, um, not just the, you know the water coming and taking the land, but also as the sea level rises, it, it raises the water table, um, and that can you know force salt water into the water table, um, and it can really jeopardize freshwater supplies, which makes it pretty difficult to sustain a, a year-round population, you know, when, when you don't have a, a reliable source of, of clean, fresh water. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, if we can start to limit some of these carbon emissions and, and keep the temperatures from rising, that'll help us keep sea levels from rising as quickly uh, so that we're not faced with some really hard decisions. Caleb, thank you very much. And let's go next to Stefan who says he's in Dead Center, Minnesota. Hi, Stefan, you're on America. Are we ready? Does Dead Center, Minnesota have a name? Yeah. You know, if you uh, go straight over across from Duluth, you'll come across a place called Coleraine. Uh-huh, and that's where you are? Coleraine, Minnesota. We're going to have a little, uh, little polar vortex. Uh, we're looking at a, you know, a scenario here where it sounds like they're going to be trying to hit the carbon tax. And we use carbon-based fuels for our heating. Um, it, it kind of is a uh, scenario where a lot of our neighbors are looking around and, you know, some that are really skilled workers, real real uh, conscientious, help each other, help anyone who needs help. But they look at these plans and they have been shaking their heads and saying, the math don't work. It doesn't jive. Me personally, I'm in the tree business. I'm going to come out smelling like a rose. So just full disclosure. <laughs> right. Um, but you're, you're but, worried mostly, you're, the people you're talking about are worried mostly about the heating bills because the cost of energy would go up, at least in the short run? It, and it looks like even if you just went out in the woods and you did your own tree, 
some digital mm-hmm. firewood. There's been some rumor that they're going to go after any all BTUs and do it that way. So if you're a consumer, you're going to be hit. Well, these are low. We're not a rich community by any means. We don't have the money, so to speak. They they kind of just are squeaking by. There's a few people that have a buck or two, but you know they're coveted. They're the ones that are employing the other ten people who don't. So we don't want to give them any reason to pick up and move out. And um, it's not an easy. It's not easy to do it. You, I hear you really that. are. You know. You know they work right to their end of their life. They don't. They don't take vacations. It's sometimes we get this narrative of people think that. Well, they're all up there just partying, and it's really quite different than what I hear on the general, you know, take on it. When I'm, I'm, I'm so glad I'm going to have to run in a second. When I finish see, your thought. Well, no, but I see some of the math. When you go out into the woods, trees actually draw heat up from the ground using their roots. Keep their cage. You get kind of a uh, a little bit of a pushback when, when you get... Sorry, it when you get... Add one, up. It Stefan, I'm so glad your voice got on the show. Thank you very, very much for calling in. And Peggy, there are a lot of Americans out there who do the math and it doesn't add up for their lives like Stefan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We know that there are probably 30 million households today that are currently energy insecure and cannot pay their energy bills um, and pay for their mortgage or rent or, or food. And so we really understand that there's going to have to be a reckoning around subsidies for lower income households to be able to afford the rising energy costs. And that is a critical issue that's got to be addressed by, by the Biden administration. Mark, you want to add will anything be, to by that? The way. Yeah, one of the most exciting things about the Biden administration is the new Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen. And you don't usually think about climate when you think about the Treasury Secretary. But she could arguably be the most important climate policymaker under Biden, and partly because of this very uh, caller's concern, which is that as you transition, yes, the price of carbon-based fuels will go up. But Janet Yellen worked on a uh, bipartisan plan before coming into the Biden administration, but something that clearly Biden knows about before he appointed her. And basically, the idea is, yes, you put an increased price on carbon, but then that tax goes back to the American people, just like we do in Alaska right now for the oil revenues. Every Alaskan citizen gets a monthly check or an annual check that comes from, from that production. Same thing will happen if Janet Yellen's plan goes forward where, yes, the, the price of uh, your heating oil will go up, but you will also be getting a check from the government to help cover that. And the beauty of this, according to the research that's been done on this, and this is not just in the U.S., but internationally, is that the people at the bottom half of the economic scale, the people in the bottom half of income scale, will come out ahead 
compared to the rich people, because the rich people have much higher energy footprints, they will end up paying more. But the average person will actually end up getting a subsidy. So watch what Janet Yellen does at Treasury if she can push through this carbon dividend tax. That's what it's called, a carbon dividend. And the American people will get money back to help pay for those uh, home heating oils. Because I, I understand that caller. My family is from Minnesota. I know what he's talking about. But they don't need to be afraid of this. Very interesting aspect of it that doesn't get discussed all that much, so I'm glad you and the caller had that exchange. We'll see how that goes, I guess, as they implement these policies. Chris in Sunnyside, Washington, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Chris. Hello. Hi there. Hey there. So how um, are you thinking? I was calling in. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to ask, how are you thinking Biden's policies might affect you from an economic or environmental justice standpoint. Go ahead. Well, for uh, you know, environmental justice standpoint, I'd say out in here in Washington, you know, the Northwest definitely focuses on these issues pretty proactively. So I feel that you know any any assistance that comes through these initiatives will definitely be used um, to the to the utmost. So I would tend tend to more advocate. Um, for those, I mean, in an environmental justice perspective, um, to those areas that, that Biden you know, sort of name dropped in his in that soundbite that you provided, I, I mm-hmm. you know, moved. I, I'm not from the Northwest. I moved up here from New Orleans. I lived there pretty much from right after Katrina for um, almost 10 years. Uh-huh. And I can say that you know, from my time down there, I you know. That, that sort of area, the Cancer Alley area from New Orleans up to Baton Rouge, the, a big part of why. Um, that area is so uh, economically di- uh, challenged, um, which, which if you look at sort of the income distribution of states, um, Louisiana, you know, states like Alabama and, and Mississippi and the, in the what's known as the Cotton Belt area, these areas are, are some of the, you know, most, you know, economically challenged areas because a lot of industry and a lot of oil and gas activity is in these areas, but which contribute to climate change, even the ones that, are no longer actively actively working. You know these these legacy sites that have been abandoned or are still just sort of are derelict out there. They pump out climate climate um, changing gases every moment of every day, and money is needed to rehabilitate these areas um, as well as infrastructure. You know people in these areas are challenged with water and clean water in many ways, which that takes more and more energy to even provide these folks with energy. So by, you know, bringing these areas up first, we can really have a big impact on climate change as a whole, um, you know, not respect with my particular area, you know. That's, that's, right, right. That's I gotcha. Well, that, that's a great contribution, Chris, how you connected some of the dots there. Thank you very much. And let's go next to Marge in Camden, Ohio. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Marge. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I want to turn everybody on to a documentary that is on Netflix. It might be on YouTube, too. It's called Kiss the Ground, and it's about no-till farming because um, apparently we've been plowing up the earth for centuries to begin with, but now we have the addition of chemicals, and so what happens is the earth goes fallow, so people have to come in the spring and revitalize the earth with chemicals because they have nothing growing in the ground, and apparently the whole planet is a carbon sink. And how it naturally works is that plants growing in the ground suck carbon out of the air. 
So if we can re-educate farmers and gardeners and anybody, anybody that plants anything to do no-till farming, to just barely turn the earth to put in a cover crop over the winter so that there's something growing in the earth the whole year round, they propose that enough carbon can be sucked out of the air to really address this carbon in the air problem within 10 or 15 years. It's very exciting, and it's called Kiss the Ground. And I, I really recommend that because I think that all of us plant anything, and particularly farmers. It's a re-education situation, but if, if we can get farmers mm-hmm. around the earth to plant in that way, in the natural way, then the whole earth becomes a carbon sink, and it's a very efficient way of cleaning carbon out of the air. Really that, thank you. Thank you, That's Marge. Really appreciate it. Uh, and there's a documentary for some of you to watch. One more in this set. Walter in Exeter, New Hampshire. Walter, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi. How you doing? Hey, I, this is a good discussion, but I, I think you need to make a couple of distinctions. First, he has to distinguish between conventional pollution, uh, you know, toxic waste, polluted water, and then you have to, and then you have to talk about emissions that cause climate change that, aside from their effect on the climate, are kind of benign. I mean, CO2 is not dangerous except for the fact that it's warming up the earth. Mm-hmm. And so the conventional pollution, you know, we, we were talking about toxic waste sites and, and, and cancer alleys, all, all of that stuff should be addressed as an issue in itself because it really is not tied in to future emissions of, of uh, fossil fuels that just cause warming. And so obviously the people that cause those problems should be, should be assessed damages and the government should fix all those problems independent of, of um, climate change. But for climate change, the nice thing about attacking uh, the emissions that cause uh, climate change is that those, the same fuels that cause those emissions also cause particulate emissions that cause the health disparities that we've been talking about, such as asthma. So coal, for, for instance, produces the most uh, 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 global warming for a given amount of heat. It also produces the most particulate matter and therefore the most asthma. So what we want is, this, is, the, is policies that will reduce global warming emissions the most. Those will also have great effects for environmental justice because the particulate matter will be reduced. Mm-hmm. Causes uh, ground level pollution. That's, those are, uh, uh, Walter, you're another caller who did a great job at connecting some of the dots. And Peggy Shepard, he's got a point, right? When Biden talks about um, Cancer Alley in Louisiana, for example, that's not from carbon emissions. We don't feel the carbon emissions on Earth. They go into the climate and they're changing all the weather and everything like that. That's not the same thing as the pollution that's causing asthma and cancer, um, which are emissions more at ground level. But Walter is right, they're the same fuels. Well, what I would say is that there's a misconception here because when you reduce greenhouse gases, you reduce the co-pollutants um, as, as well. That's one reason why the environmental justice community does not support carbon, uh, carbon trading because we need to reduce, if we're going to reduce carbon, you've got to reduce the co-pollutants in the same community. So I, I would not say that that is a, a correct estimation of the problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, in our last couple of minutes, I want to ask you each, 
how Biden is falling short so far from an environmentalist perspective. For example, activists want a national ban on fracking, and he has leaned more toward the language of cleaner fracking as opposed to no fracking. People debate if cleaner fracking is a thing. Uh, but Mark, what are the what are some of the tension points so far? And you know, we can't do all of this by executive order. He's going to need Congress at some point. Correct. <clears throat> but uh, I have to say that if you'd have told me uh, five or ten years ago that a president of the United States would be saying half of the things that the current president of the United States is saying, not only about the problem but about how we're going to fix it, which is how to you know we're going to create jobs by fixing this America, I wouldn't have believed it. So uh, I'll answer the question, but I think that anybody who has studied uh, climate policy for a while, it's pretty hard to, to fault uh, President Biden on this. You did mention correctly that he has resisted an all-out ban on fracking, uh, although he is opposed to it on federal lands. And I think that was largely, frankly, a, a gesture towards the state of Pennsylvania in the 2020 election. And now that that's passed, we'll see what happens. Uh, quickly on something that the previous caller said, one of the previous callers, about uh, farms. That's a very important part of Biden's climate plan. And he was talking about this literally a year ago at the Iowa caucuses back in, in the campaign, that we're going to pay farmers to, um, to store carbon in their soil. It's good for climate. It's good for the soil. It's good for productivity. Excellent piece in the, in the uh, New York Times just this past weekend on how also Biden is being challenged to push this into uh, helping black farmers across the United States who have historically been discriminated against. I think that is an area to watch. Uh, will they really meet uh, what they said? And, and mm -hmm. the, uh, in that regard, the Agriculture yeah. Department is a place where Biden has been criticized for reappointing uh, Tom Vilsack, who had a poor record on this when he served under Obama. So that's one of the things that we're going to be watching. Peggy Shepard, 30 seconds for a now. final word. We need bold action, um, and Biden seems to be taking that. He's going to be listening to, to advocates, and we're going to be helping to ensure that these plans are implemented in the appropriate way. Peggy Shepard and Mark Hertzgard, thank you both so much. Listeners look for their groups. We act for environmental ju uh, justice and covering climate now. And that's America Are We Ready for this week. We'll keep doing these on Thursday nights at this time for the first 100 days of the Biden presidency. And so ends day 16. If you're interested, you can listen to my national politics podcast. It's called Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. Or I'll just talk to you next Thursday, day 23 on America Are We Ready. Thanks for listening and good night.